Hello and welcome to Questonia, the podcast where we ask the questions that we think we think need asking about Estonian news and culture. I'm Stuart Garlick, Marius Helvand is also here, and uh, today we're talking to Keegan McBride. He's a postdoctoral researcher at the Hertie School Centre for Digital Governance in Berlin, Germany. He completed his PhD in technology governance at Tallinn University of Technology in Tallinn, Estonia, now called Taltech and is heavily involved in international government research, teaching and consulting. Um, Keegan, hi, uh, good, great to have you on the podcast. Um, where are you at the moment and um, how do we find you? Yeah, right now I'm I'm in Berlin. Uh, everything's locked down because of Corona. But uh, yeah, I spent so many years in Estonia that I'm still quite active uh, with the things going on there. That's awesome. Um, I mean, the reason we should probably explain the reason we invited you on the podcast. It's because you wrote um, a brilliant long read, which has been shared on various publications um, about the Estonian digital infrastructure, which has been much lauded over the years by various uh, areas of the press and why it hasn't quite been able to uh, hack the coronavirus crisis um, as as we'd hoped and why indeed it doesn't seem to be helping in the way that maybe expectations thought it would. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll come on to that. Um, but uh, what what was it that persuaded you to write this article, and um, what was it that uh, made you think, yeah, this is a story that needs to be told? Yeah. So, I mean, th- this article that that's talking about the sort of e-government response or digital government response to Corona inside Estonia, it's gone through quite a few outlets now. At first, it was. Uh, written as an opinion piece for ST Pivot, the sort of like daily mag daily paper in Estonia. Uh then from there it was put into uh the national Lithuanian broadcaster in English and then Lithuanian and it got picked up by New Eastern Europe as well after that. But but anyways, you know, I've been very active uh, throughout the sort of corona crisis inside Estonia working with different uh, governmental agencies, working with different civic tech projects. Uh, for example, coronacart.de and now pirongood.de. And these are just different sort of services to provide information about the coronavirus inside Estonia. Uh, and in relation to this, you know, I have quite many friends who are in different ministries or directly involved with, with the sort of pandemic. And one guy I talk with quite a lot, he works for the Ministry of Social Affairs. And so we wrote together or are working on writing together a paper on the digital response to coronavirus inside Estonia, uh, like a more academic paper. And from this, the sort of op-ed spiraled out. What is your assessment? What What is the state of play in, in this digital response? Because I think uh, in general, like from my uh, from my professional perspective, the expectation from many other countries, from my um, journalist colleagues from abroad, was that Estonia would have a digital way of tackling this crisis up and running among one of the first. So, um, and also probably um, uh, the citizens had quite high expectations. And uh, to be honest, this has not really happened. Uh, but is that is that just my understanding, my view, or is that something that um, you can confirm, or um, or uh, perhaps uh, say that it is this is a wrong understanding? 
I mean, let, let's just look at some headlines about Estonian e-government uh, over the past, I don't know, couple of years. You have things, for example, like where the world, where in the world will you find the most advanced e-government? Estonia. Lessons from the most digitally advanced country in the world. Estonia has turned government into a website. Other countries are trying to follow suit. Estonia has become a tech utopia. Estonia, the digital republic, its government is virtual, borderless, blockchain, and secure. Everybody says that Estonia is the number one e-government in the world. And it, this isn't something new. Uh, I'm looking right now at an interview with Mart Lahr in 2001, and he says basically, okay, estiqui success story. This is what we're going to do. We are going to be an e-government state. It's not necessarily like a top-down governmental managing everything. Uh, we're going to be an e-state, and here's how we're going to do it. It wasn't coordinated like that. But the idea of making Estonian brand, uh, you know, Estonia is a small state. It needs to find something it's very good at. It's just part of small states. They they specialize in one thing, and then this becomes their brand. For Estonia, this is digital government. And as a result of this, you know, you can see this. It's being marketed everywhere. We are the best, uh, even though the indices don't actually support that. They're not really number one on any international e-government index, but let's just ignore that for now. So yes, the international expectations were, of course, very high that Estonia would have some sort of amazing digital government response. And we are so digital, we don't actually need public administration, we don't need bureaucracy, we don't have rules and regulations, we are just digital, everything should work perfectly. But it's just, it's just not true. And, and so I think that, that your friends were right in the sense that everybody was expecting that we should have had some sort of amazing response to COVID from a technological point of view, uh, but that didn't occur. Now, we did do well. This, this is something I want to point out because people, when reading this, assume that I'm saying that everything sucks, every, nothing worked. That's not the case. A lot of things went very well. You know, We do have accurate statistics because of this. We do have a sort of head start on many other countries. The issue comes in when you set priorities unrealistically high and you say, we are the best, we don't even need the government because we have a digital government. Uh, we can solve everything with our technology. And then reality hits really hard and it shows that this is just not true. But you've set the, the, the bar so high as part of your marketing efforts that even if you do really, really, really well, you look like you're underperforming quite a lot. And this is just something that, that needs to be paid attention to. And actually, to follow that up, I, I think you mentioned the sort of difference between expectations and reality there. But for many years, they've been able to ride on those expectations, uh, Estonia, in its uh, national marketing, uh, without those expectations ever really being seriously challenged. So uh, these articles saying how well it was dealing with the current crisis because of e-governance uh, um, are, are still being written. Uh, if you Google uh, why has Estonia um, had problems dealing with the pandemic, the first seven or eight articles are those kind of very laudatory pieces that you quoted the titles of there but um obviously there's the wi-fi and the forest trope as well which comes up quite a lot but um so was it all smart branding or um was there some kernel of truth in the sort of e-governance um nation branding and um what was it was it ever really fair the amount of expectation that was being placed on the country to achieve in this sector well, I mean, I, th this is such a sort of complex issue to dissect because there's so much that needs to be unpacked around the historical developments of e-government in Estonia and political institutions and and different sort of contextual factors that, that build up to all of this. So I think that 
before I sort of jump into answering the question, I have to explain a bit about all of this. Um, I, I will try to do it quickly. Yes, of course, Estonia, you know, when Estonia gained its independence, it was very poor. It had the sort of leftovers of Soviet administrative structures, which were very decentralized and fragmented. And the people in charge were basically in the situation where they needed to build a state and institutions very quickly, but they didn't have money. And they didn't have these sort of like strong uh, history of democratic institutions and, and bureaucratic institutions like you might see in, for example, Germany. And so the in, sort of initial people were basically given the charge to build a functioning <laughs> civil service with limited funds. And what happened was you had very smart, very skilled people in the right positions at the right time where they were given you know, basically a free pass to do what they needed to do because there wasn't regulation, there wasn't uh, legislation, there wasn't these strong, uh, so to say, traditions that said you can or you cannot do this. Uh, you just had really technical people who were given some, here's how much money you have, now make it work, and they did. And and you see this in the early 2000s under the leadership of Martelar and, and, you know, moving on, that many things did happen. You have sort of, uh, you know, the e-tax is probably one of the better systems that was built. Um, and this is only possible because you have the right people in the right place. Uh, one person I used to work with at, at uh, at Tallinn University of Technology, we can sort of compare this to, the, you know, let's draw on the startup uh, analogy because startups are so popular in Estonia. Uh, start startups, uh, when you first start, you know, there's no rules, there's no regulations, you just come out, you drink beer with your friends, whatever you're building, it's very loose, it's very informal, and you have a lot of creativity and a lot of freedom. But what happens is eventually you start to make money uh, if you're successful which means that you have to hire new managers, you have to become structured, then you have to listen to your investors, and you become more, like a more formalized organization, which sort of constrains and limits this creativity that you allowed you to build up very fast at the beginning. And we see that in Estonia as well. So early on, lots of freedom, limited resources, build an estate, basically. So they did that. But then, you know, since what, 2008, I guess, was when we launched eHealth, uh, there hasn't really been any major development. You could sure talk about e-residency, but th this is uh, not for Estonian citizens, really. It, it's it's outward facing. So so yes, at the beginning, I think certainly they did really well building it. But then the question is, how do you continue to innovate and not just let things stagnate? Which is yeah. How Former President Thomas Hendrik Ilves said in a recent conference that there's been five years of stagnation in e-government. Um, but it sounds like you would actually say the stagnation has been longer than five years. Uh, when do you feel this kind of sense of resting on laurels, if indeed that's how you feel? When do you feel it began? I'm not going to put an exact date to it, but it's it's certainly not a new, new uh, phenomena. Um, I mean... The issue is, is that Estonia is very much influenced by the sort of new public management uh, governance paradigm and this, you know, idea of downsizing. They don't want a big public sector. We're a small state. Uh, we don't have many experts. We already are very limited in the, in the size of the public sector because it's a small country, so you can only hire so many people. But the, my point is, is that mm, recently, 
there's huge, huge pressures to decentral or to shrink the size of the state, right? And as a result of this, everything gets outsourced uh, to private sector companies to build digital government solutions. The issue is you have less people inside the private, inside the public sector, excuse me, uh, less people with smaller budgets who are being tasked with maintaining everything that was built previously, but now with less money and less people. And on, in addition to this, they need to innovate and build new services and all these different things. And th there's a pretty clear relationship, I would say, between these sort of downsizing initiatives and what you see as uh, e-government, uh, let's say, underperformance or stagnation issues. I mean, I think right now the Ministry of Culture, for example, has two or three people that work as their IT department for tens and tens of different agencies. And they just, they're contract managers. I mean, that's what the, he, what I'm trying to remember his name. I just did an interview, but that's how they described it to me, at least. Come back to the to the health issues um, that uh, that everyone experiences now. Can you just uh, list certain services where you think that something uh, that opportunities were missed, or what is uh, what is working well, what is what what is not working at all, or what is lacking? There's um, something that uh, what I've, uh, because this um, e-medicine has been has also been a topic that has been uh, sort of interesting for for my for international colleagues. I've been doing many stories about this um, this uh, digital patient digilugu um, and etc. and that you can can, can go um, to a pharmacy without the paper prescription. All these things um, that we take for granted are still um, uh, sort of a far uh, far distant future for germans where you are based yeah. right now so there there are clearly some very very good solutions but uh, uh, what are the things that are actually lacking now in this situation if we're talking about the sort of coronavirus pandemic specifically you know the clearest issues come out when for example related to vaccinations I mean, you have this sort of response where different agencies or you have the Ministry of Social Affairs, you have Hagi Kasa, you have Turbi Seamat, you have Tahik. These are different sort of organizations and, you know, the ministry, whatever, coordinating different parts of the response. But the issue is that you have regulations and legislation which define which registries you can get access to, which data can be accessed, how it can be accessed. Uh, so, for example, there's uh, EMTA, the uh, tax and... Uh, yeah, tax and border guard. I guess. No, not border guard. Thank you. I know it's in Estonian, but not English. But <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, tax and customs, they have written inside the law who can access data from, from them. So if you want to, for example, build a database on frontline workers or something like that, and you want data from the employment registry to figure out who is a teacher, who is a doctor, who whatever, you actually have to go through Rigikogu and change the law, uh, which is happening right now. Uh, so draft bills have been submitted, uh, which is causing a whole lot of controversy. And so you see issues like this, where the data exists, it's just in different places with different organizations responsible for it, and there's legislation and regulation that blocks it from uh, from, from actually sort of manifesting and, and being used as, as people would hope it should be used. And I think this is one of the core things as well, is that you know, the technology is not necessarily the hard part here. Uh, <laughs> 
I think you cover sort of uh, racing and stuff like this, Stuart. So I'll give an example from this. If you if you give me and you give a professional driver the same car, I can guarantee you you're going to get a different result uh, if we're doing a race, even though the technology is exactly the same. You know, and and you will see this uh, when it comes to digital government. You know, it, it's not necessarily about the existence of the technology; it's about how it's used. It's about the environment that it's used within, because uh, the technology is influenced by the environment. It influences the environment. Uh, so, if you have these uh, regulations and things that are preventing it from being used, then it, it's that's just how it is. Now, that's not to say that regulation is bad. I think it's I think it's good and it's needed. Uh, and so, in this sense, when, for example, the data protectorate is is slowing down the vaccination process or the uh, creating of databases or or lists of who can be vaccinated or who is in a high risk group, they're doing their job, and I think this is this is important. But people seem to forget this part, and they assume that the state can just be like, "Oh, we have the technology, boom, clap our hands, everything's done." But there's actually so much going on behind the scenes that slows this whole process down. But it's just never communicated, which makes them look worse, which increases the calls for shrinking the public sector because they can say, look, they're not doing anything. Uh, they're so slow. It's not working. Why do we need a public sector that's so big? Why are they taking so much money if it doesn't work anyways? And it just perpetuates itself. You know, It's a, a negative reinforcement loop. When it comes to dealing with the public health crisis that we're in at the moment, your article also seems to argue that the real flaws in planning were, um, as you said just then, a result of a long-term lack of uh, high-level integration. Um, but how do you explain, for example, maybe as part of that, um, the low priority seemingly given to a quick, quick rollout last year of a contact tracing app? Um, we did a program about it, and uh, it was the result of volunteer labour by a small team, Um in Finland, by comparison, the contact tracing app was downloaded by a third of the population voluntarily within a week. And yet, I'm I'm not sure Estonia has hit 20% of the population with it on their phones yet. Um, and there, there are flaws with this. Also, there have been other apps such as TestyMe, which was developed in conjunction with SynLab, which has a certain virus data sharing capacity to it, does a different job, but uh, isn't integrated with the Hoya contact tracing app. So... Um, this, along with, you know, um, family doctors being expected to conduct vaccine rollouts on Excel spreadsheets, it seems to point to a frustrating um, inability to use the marginal gains that you've mentioned software might otherwise offer. So, um, well, I mean, is it just a lack of high level coordination and um, how frustrating is this for you? Well, I mean, something that, that we also have to talk about here, I, I will get into Hoya, uh, but Turgus Ahmet is, you know, in the past, they, they have taken different agencies and whatever, merged them, put them into one. This is what's happened to Turgus Ahmet. A few years ago, a few different agencies were put together and and they were supposed to become this more centralized type of uh, organization that fulfills different functions. That didn't go so well. And there's been managerial issues ever since this change occurred. Um, there's master's thesis, there's bachelor's thesis written on the sort of lack of preparedness that Turvise Ahmed had for crisis situations. If you are ever interested, go through, read through the Rigi control reports on Turvise Ahmed. They have failed, if not every single uh, crisis exercise, easily a large share of them. Uh, it was clear to anybody who has monitored and observed the sort of 
preparedness and readiness of this organization for such an event, what would happen? Uh, and, and I should also say that uh, what I'm talking about here inside the public sector, this is not uh, you know, anything surprising. This is general, general knowledge, but it's just communicated quite poorly, I would say, outside of governmental circles, which is something that should be addressed. But, but anyway, so, so am I surprised? Absolutely not. Uh, is anybody who worked inside the government surprised at how bad the response was at the beginning? Um, my guess is absolutely not. If we talk about Hoya, I was actually indirectly involved with that at the very beginning uh, before I before I backed out. Um, but there, there's this this is an interesting app because it's one of the first examples where sort of private sector was able to work really well with the public sector to build something like this. The, the public sector had been struggling quite a lot with taking help from private sector organizations and other organizations at the start of the crisis. There's no sort of regulatory format for them to do that. How do you integrate volunteers? How do you integrate businesses who are just trying to help? Uh, there was no clear structure for this. And, and so a lot of sort of opportunities went uh, wasted at the beginning. At some point, they set up a portal to try to coordinate this a bit better. I, I'm not sure if that still exists, but to me, I find the Hoya app is one of the clearest examples of this sort of techno-centric approaches to governing in the sense that, where, you know, so it, it, rather, it's an example of when all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Estonia does digital government. We do technology. Here's a crisis. We're going to do technology. We're going build to a, build a contact tracing app. Not only are we going to build a contact tracing app, we're going to build the most secure one. We're going to build the best one. Uh, so we are not going to use the Singapore stuff. We're going you know, to make it super secure. We're going to make it the best. And then we're going to market it and say, look, we didn't even have to pay for it. The private sector built us the best app in the world. But <laughs> the, what it turns out is that the it's so secure, which is good. You know, Data privacy is important. That there's almost no actionable statistics that the government gets from it. Then you have issues with integration, which we've talked about. You know, it's not part of the sort of EU interoperability framework. So if I am in Germany or in Latvia using the Estonian contact tracing app, it doesn't work. But Latvia's, for example, would work in Germany, uh, as far as I understand. Uh, there's not even enough smartphones inside Estonia to actually run the Hoya application at the level that you would expect. This is something they, they didn't really talk about, but from my internal conversations, this is what I've heard that telecommunication providers have basically said, like, there's a certain amount of smartphones inside Estonia, and that is less than what you would need for this to work very, very effectively. It does something, yes. Will it work? Uh, I mean, yes, it does a little bit. Sure, it helps. But there's much more pressing, is pressing issues. Uh, I think that the, the Hoya app had a budget of a few hundred thousand euros for marketing at the very beginning. Yeah, this, this was a time when you had not enough contact tracers who they couldn't call everybody. They were filling information in on spreadsheets. Uh, and the decision to, for example, di divert funds to build an app which has had little impact, which could have rather been di diverted to, for example, hiring more contact tracers or something like this. I'm not sure if that was the best choice, but it's what we have. So, so yeah, the, the Hoya app is, is interesting. And then, of course, the first procurement failed. Uh, now they're organizing the second procurement uh, for, I don't remember how many hundreds of thousands of euros, 600,000 euros, I think, over two years or something like that. It's a framework contract. But if we're supposed to be vaccinated by, what, August or something, the government says, by the time the app is actually ready, by the time the procurement's finished, 
according to the government, when they're saying everything is going to be better, we're all going to be vaccinated, the app's not going to be ready by that point. Or if it is, it's going to be at the tail end of it. So at, at what point do you just give it up? I mean, that was, uh, that was one of the arguments um, to do it in a voluntary-based uh, work um, to start with, that uh, the, the public procurement would just cost so much time. But in the end, um, the product um, that, um, that came out doesn't really work. At least my personal trial of it has uh, failed completely. <laughs> so we had a positive case in my family and... Uh, he was uh, very diligent uh, and marked himself uh, as COVID positive and nobody got a message uh, via the app. And uh, so there it goes. So something that, that it, it doesn't surprise me, to be honest, but uh, something also that, that's important to point out is that the Hoya app was basically managed by somebody uh, at the ministry and he was sort of the product owner and this was his final project before he left to go to a major hospital inside Estonia. Uh, and what happened is that all of a sudden there was this project, but nobody knew where to put it, who was in charge now. And it's just sort of like this orphaned project that nobody really wants to touch, but they all kind of want to touch at the same time. It's just, it, it, it's a bit of a complicated situation. Perhaps to prove the point that it's not all about technology, but you, you still need people around it to and to interface and um, to make it work in a meaningful way. Yeah, and I mean, this is the, the core sort of you know, point of my argument is that when we're talking about digital government or e-government, people focus on the first part of this, right? They focus on the e, they focus on the digital. We have government. Government exists. There is people. I mean, we just built the super ministry on Sur America. We have this giant building that hosts a bunch of different ministries. It is the epitome of sort of, you know, it's like a Kafkaesque building representing bureaucracy. The idea that Estonia doesn't need a bureaucracy or that Estonia doesn't need government because we're so digital. And, and this is something that, that is marketed abroad. We are so digital, we don't actually need this sort of stuff. I, I'm not trying to be sort of, this, this is what you actually hear. And it's just so obviously not true. But, but for some reason, people seem to ignore this. And I'm not sure why that's the case. It seems to me that maybe there's an there's a problem in, endemic with um, initiatives like the Hoya app and maybe even with e-residency before it and with other schemes before that, in that um, the the public doesn't has an automatic or m much of the public has an automatic distrust of the initiative because it comes from government now. How does Estonia solve that long term? Do you have any maybe uh, ideas? There's a, there's a few things to, to unpack here, but the whole idea that Estonians have very high trust in government and that's why e-government works, it, I don't think that's the case. And I'm pretty sure that this is, at least in the academic circles uh, where I was studying at the Nurse Institute, this is generally the, so to say, um, understood stood position is that but there's kind of two alternative ideas to it. On the one hand, I guess it's Reinhard Kattel who, who advances this one, which is Estonia has a long period of being uh, occupied by different countries, Sweden, Germany, Russia, etc. So if Estonia can't trust its government to do what it needs to do, then what's the point? Uh, you know, th this is one, one argument, is that there's such a long history of occupation, now they have an Estonian government. This is the only option. And then the other one is that uh, it's not necessarily lack of 
trust in government. Uh, it's not necessarily trust in government, but it's more like lack of fear. Estonians know everybody, your cousin or your cousin's brother, or whatever. You have some sort of family member who is in government or who knows somebody in government or you know somebody who knows somebody. And you don't necessarily think that the government is going to do anything evil. You might not trust them, you might not like them, but you're not necessarily scared they're going to come into your house and take you away when you're sleeping, hopefully. Um, so this is the other one. And in order to sort of like also uh, prevent this you know, fear, so to say, uh, as the e-government solutions push this transparency bit quite a lot. So you can go online, you can see if somebody's looked at your data and if they have and you want to question why, you can write them. And if they're accessing it illegally, then they get punished. And this goes a long way in sort of boosting support in the system. I wondered how to get past that very low level of deference towards government, very low level of trust towards government. No, I think, Stuart, I would disagree. I would, uh, I would disagree with this uh, statement because a lot of it, uh, what people, I mean, it doesn't really reflect in people's uh, actions. I mean, if you if you look at uh, uh, well, the most popular public service that everyone knows and uses. Um, very consciously it's attack, doing the taxes uh, i mean this is this is as 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 uh, bare as someone can make themselves in front of the government so this is uh, because people use it to such a high proportion that that proves that there is a lot of trust there and this trust was actually i think built from convenience because this has been very very convenient and practical and you you because you get your tax return so quickly so um i would i would um disagree with the statement that there is a there is a distrust of uh, things coming from the government in case of the e residency that you might perhaps uh, be referring to this is just something that where people don't have any sort of understandable tangible benefit from uh, Estonians or citizens because it because it is not a service for them so it seems some something dubious and maybe perhaps uh, uh, a moment of distrust is there but it's it's uh, I wouldn't apply to all general services like when you get to apply for your child benefit and kindergarten slot and etc online i mean people are using these services so if they wouldn't trust the government they would not be using them hmm. I, I would just point out as well and that i sort of agree but there's also a difference between trust in government and trust in the services themselves and uh, they're not necessarily correlated or, or, or the same thing so i think both are right kind of on different sides of the same coin but uh Maurice mentioned how this sort of experience or use or or you know familiarity with these services is built up over time i think this is actually a really good point to cover uh now briefly that uh, estonian e-government a lot of its success is owed to the private sector and specifically swedish banks and telecoms and things like that when you had uh, the new country uh, you have these sort of technological innovations that are coming from from the banks. For example, e-banking, they were closing down offices and they encouraged people to access the online bank, you know, via sort of the ID card or some sort of electronic um, service. And what this started was people 
becoming familiar with authenticating themselves online because they were using e-banking. And once people got used to this idea of authenticating themselves online for e-banking, this whole system can sort of grow from there. Uh, this is why also, and you know, banks also have very stringent uh, sort of identity requirements. So KYC, you know your customer. And which is why uh, earlier on you could use your bank just to log into SD.de or something like that. Uh, because you knew that this person was was this person, and so this has a, a long history of people of an ecosystem basically slowly being built around this digital identity, and it just becomes a part of your life. It's, yeah. So 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 that's one thing. I I want to also just bring it back a little bit to the pandemic and digital services and and things like that. There's, you know. There's one saying that you hear quite a lot, which is Wi-Fi can't fill an empty stomach. And I think this is very clear during the pandemic. When you're not working, your family is all unemployed, you have three kids, you need to make sure they all have a laptop or a tablet so that they can go to school, but you can't afford it because you don't have a job, because you've been laid off because of Corona. And you have all, who cares if you have a digital prescription at this point? I mean, really, if, if you're living in in, in Viroba, or in Vuruma or, or in Valgama or something where you're away from a population center. Admittedly, this is not the best example because well, Ida Viruma is now, now quite heavily hit with, with coronavirus. But the e-services that we talk about, online voting, e-health, uh, at this point, it doesn't matter. I mean, they are helpful. But what you really want is somebody to be on the TV telling you, yeah, this sucks. We know it sucks. Here is how we're going to get over it. Here's the strategy. And here's how I'm going to make sure you don't starve and that your kids can still go to school. It, it, to, so to come out and say things like, yeah, but we have internet voting. So at, you know, our digital state is working very well. It's just completely missing the point. I mean, digital services and e-government should be about making people's lives better. But for some reason in the communications, they don't talk about that, do they? They talk about, we pay for NATO membership with our digital government because we've saved 2% of GDP. They tell you, oh, but here's how much uh, more efficient we are. Many of these initiatives, uh, they they try to point out the citizen benefits from it, right? Like, oh, the citizen state. I'm very hesitant to believe that that is actually the sort of primary motivation for a lot of these services. It, it, at least in my, my own research, when I've gone to different countries and talked with them, here here, here is generally how the conversation goes. For example, building a new new service for, for registering for kindergarten spaces or something like that. The old system was everybody had to bring in a piece of paper and some guy or some woman or some team would sit in an office and they would look at all these pieces of paper and then they would file them and then they would do this, that, the other thing. And then they all sat down together and went, you know what? I really don't like looking at all these pieces of paper. I bet if we made an online form, it would make our life a little bit easier. So they hire somebody, they build an online form for this registration system. And then instead of saying, oh yeah, now our lives are easier, they say, your lives are way easier now because you don't have to bring me a form. You just do it online. But was that the initial purpose? I think not. It is a side effect. And you see this within government a lot. And there, there was a really interesting article uh, by Rainer Kattel and Ines Mergo, which brings out that Estonia is really great with e-health, with e-school. Um, the only countries lower than us when it comes to quality of life or, or societal well-being on, in the sort of OECD Better Life Index, I think it's, I think we're 35th out of 40th in this index, and the countries lower than us are, are like 
Hungary and Turkey and, and something else as South Africa. So the people aren't necessarily happy. Uh, we have a very high income inequality. We have really bad issues when it comes to gender equality. We have really low satisfaction with the healthcare system. We have really low satisfaction with the education system. You know, teachers are, are aging. It's harder to get spots in good schools, all these different sorts of things. So what is the point of the E-State at that point? If, if you have all these cool innovative solutions, but people still aren't happy with the things that the E-State is supposed to be solving. And I think that, that the coronavirus is really highlighting this as well. The, the counter argument would be that we would be in a much worse state if we didn't have these services. <laughs> in some ways, it, it could be. I'm, I'm sure, for example, like, it, once again, I just want to point out, for, I am, of course, quite critical of, of this digital government response to COVID-19 so far, but that doesn't mean that I think that everything is awful. I'm there, there, But if you want to move forwards, you have to take critical perspectives on what has gone wrong. That doesn't mean that everything is awful and that we should just give up. Uh, and, and I have taken a whole lot of criticism for my sort of more critical approaches on this. But having criticism for these different sorts of things is not necessarily bad. It's how you develop, it's how you move forwards. It's necessary. Uh, otherwise, you really run the risk of stagnating. Um, everything works fine, great, okay. Uh, but what's the next step? And and I think this is something that, that is really important to pay attention to, is just because everything is okay now, and we saw this during the coronavirus crisis, just because everything is okay, the environment can change quickly, and things that used to work very well don't necessarily work. Uh, just because it's in, in the article, I will bring it up quickly, like, what, what do I mean? Why was Estonia's digital government able to develop so quickly, so cheaply, all these different sorts of things? Well, it's a small state, so it has a small public sector, which means it outsources everything. So you use government investments to invest in the private sector, specifically IT companies who then build these solutions uh, for different governmental agencies. So you get solutions for cheaper, you build the IT industry, you sort of build up your um, expertise in the private sector of this so they can sell their products abroad. Then their products are also part of this e-government narrative so that you can say, look, we did it in Estonia and they're number one. And now I can go and sell it to Dubai or something like that, which is what Northall does. I mean, this is Northall's whole business model is build something for Estonia and sell it everywhere else. Uh, guard time is doing this, the, the vaccine guard that they're going to implement with Tehik. Uh, as far as I understand, they're giving it to them for free. Uh, the X-Road has a blockchain, which isn't really blockchain, but that's also provided by guard time for, I think, uh, similar purposes. They can just say, look, they use it, and then it helps sell, sell it abroad. But But okay. Uh, the issue with this is it works very well when there's not a pandemic, but most of these things are paid for by EU structural funds or other sorts of things which require procurement. There's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of bureaucracy behind it. So what happens when you have a pandemic, you have five people working in the sort of IT team, you need to make sure your existing systems are working, not only working, but now instead of students and parents checking every now and then, they're always using it every day at ridiculously increased loads. You need to make sure these don't crash. You need to make sure that uh, on top of that, everything else doesn't crash. But now there's needs for all these new services. So you need to build something that can fill these new needs because of the pandemic. But you can't build it because you outsourced everything to the private sector, which means you have to write a procurement. But guess what? Procurements take time. They cost money. And so how, how can you do all of this at the same time? Uh, 
so everything that allowed Estonia to, you know, develop cheaply, develop this e-government, you know, well early on, actually worked against it when the pandemic hit, because you, you can't adapt fast enough. Uh, what would you, what would be your one top recommendation? How to fix this? How to be better prepared for a for a situation like that? Well, I mean, there's a few different things. Like, for example, outsourcing of your IT capability significantly limits your organization's ability to adapt and be agile in response to crisis. So, I think there's a, a whole lot of this uh, has to do, or could be fixed rather, or remedied by building up the sort of internal IT capability. But the answer is the or my answer is, is that the answer to this is not popular in Estonia and probably won't fly. Because what you have to say is you need a bigger public sector with more money. And that is absolutely not possible in Estonia because it is just a political death sentence if you come out and say we need to increase the size of the public sector and we want to have more money. It's just, it's just not, going to go, not, not going to work. So I'd say that's one, one part of it, uh, is, is boosting the internal IT capability if, if you can. Uh, even though Estonia's e-government is quite decentralized, and this is by design, some sort of centralization aspects help, especially for these different sorts of things. But once again, this is not going to be a popular perspective inside uh, Estonia. And I think it's important to not ignore the public administration and the regulation and the bureauc bureaucratic parts of digital government. I mean, they're not as popular, they're not as cool but they're so important to how all this works that it's uh, a, a bit negligent to ignore them, which, which often happens. But I think if you talk about this more, if you discuss you know, what these issues are a bit more, there's more awareness of it, you learn from other uh, you know, organizations. To, just to give an example, many states sent their people to Estonia to learn uh, about digital I'm not sure how often Estonians go abroad to Singapore or to Denmark or to South Korea to learn about their digital government. It might happen, but certainly not at the rate that uh, Germany sends their public administrators to Estonia. It's okay to admit you're not the best. It is okay to go to other places and learn. It is okay to say, we don't know. It is okay to say that we have a good e-government, but we can do better. Saying that we're the best and everything works and if you... Uh, criticize and say it didn't work perfectly, then, then you know, whatever. It's like committing sacrilege. I understand that digital government is part of Estonia's identity, and I understand that, uh, you know, it's sort of a key part of Estonian society as well. But if you want to maintain this, you have to improve. It's not enough to reach a certain level and just stop and say, this is it, that, okay, we're okay. You have to have this desire to improve and move forward. I just haven't seen that recently, and that's because of underfunding and stuff like that. So, so there's certainly a funding aspect to this as well, uh, which has been highlighted as well in many different audit reports. I think we maybe ought to um, ought to tackle the um, obvious criticism that we'll get, which is uh, um, two two of us are foreigners. You're, you're an academic expert, I'm not, um, and we're both talking about the problems of Estonia. So there's always there's always going to be someone who says, "Ah, well, they're not Estonians, so they don't know what they're talking about." But I think we should explain. You spend most of your working day speaking Estonian to people. Uh, you've been working in or with Estonia for uh, well, the better part of a decade, I think, haven't you? So uh, um, we we are talking talking about, uh, at least in Keegan's case, some serious expertise. Something about how, es how Estonia can learn the lessons is something I want to ask, really, which is um, w we know what Estonia needs to do to fix the issues that you've mentioned, but 
is your sense that they will or not? Or is your sense that with this being a very proud nation of people who, as you said, don't really like to necessarily admit that they've got something to learn, is your sense that a lot of these learnings will end up uh, being swept under the carpet after we exit this crisis, hopefully? I think that there there are a lot of issues that are contextual and hard to get rid of that, that sort of trigger this with, for example, the a context of being uh, occupied by the Soviet Union and uh, being a small state where you actually do have limited resources, you do have limited access to specialists. Uh, th th these things aren't necessarily going going to go away. So I think, for example, Sim Sikut, who's running all this at, at MKM, you know, he's very much pushing for the sort of outsourcing everything. I don't think that's going to change. And, and based on my conversations with him, that you know, sort of seems to be the case. So, so the question is then is like, yeah, if you are going to continue down this path of outsourcing everything and uh, the public sector is going to keep shrinking, uh, which it will, I'm fairly sure, uh, unless something crazy happens, uh, you need to, to pay attention to how you can avoid these sorts of shortcomings in the future. Uh, in this paper I wrote with, with my colleague, we make some sort of recommendations but yeah i don't want to say that it's going to be all swept under the rug but uh i would be very doubtful that much changes to be honest i hope that rigi control for example or rigi kogu looks into it and at least does something and offers recommendations or has some sort of strategic uh oversight or perspective on this there, there was something uh, last year, I guess, from from Rigi Control about how the E-State functioned in response to, to the crisis. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the thing is, it's the people who work in the public sector. You know, they're not dumb. They all know this. Uh, I'm not speaking anything or talking about anything that's uh, unheard of to people who work in the private uh, public sector. the The issue is, is how do you make Estonian society more aware? and more in tune with the issues that the public sector is facing. And you need proper communications for that because you also run the risk of just looking more incompetent. Uh, and this is generally the perspective that, that, that I've heard from when I'm having conversations with people at different ministries. Um, if I ask, for example, you know, everybody is railing on you in the media saying you're just incompetent, but you're telling me and you have very clear explanations how you literally can't do it because of this specific legislation. Why don't you just say something? Oh, we can't say something because then we look even worse than we already are. So, so it's it's more politically advantageous to just take the beating in the media than try to explain why it's not working so well because they feel that it will make them look more incompetent. And I think this is also something that's more widespread in Estonia is that that communications work needs to be improved across most ministries, but it will be a key part for any sort of future developments. Keegan McBride, postdoctoral researcher at the Hertie School Centre for Digital Governance in Berlin uh, and uh, researcher at Teltech as well. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And um, for those who want to read his article, I will put the link to it in the description of this podcast. Um, thank you for listening to Questonia. If you want to subscribe to the podcast and follow our other episodes, it's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all other good audio platforms. And um, 
uh, Keegan, if we want to find you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle and um, how can we get in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, but on Twitter my handle is Keegan McBee. Um, and I have my own website as well, which is keeganmcbride.ee. Uh, Sorry. Fantastic. Um, thank you very much.